Hallelujah. Amen. I want to hear some joy in our voices. Hallelujah. The Bible says that we should make a joyful noise to the Lord. So when we come before the presence of the Lord, there should always be a joyful noise that is heard by us on earth so that God in heaven will hear it as well. Amen. It is uh, with great joy that we welcome you once again um, to this evening's Get Understanding um, service with Bishop James Hansen Saki. We are grateful to God to be alive. Um, Bishop has taught us that gratitude to God uh, should be an everyday attitude and not an occasional accident and incident. And um, as we sang, because of who God is, we give him thanks. So we thank God because of who he is, not just because of what he has done for us. Because sometimes when we look at it like that, it's a bit difficult to say thank you. Um, so we thank God this evening just to be alive is just by his grace. On behalf of Bishop James Hansen Saki and Pastor Justine Hansen Saki, we welcome you to our midweek service. This is Christ Church International. And this evening we are having a Get Understanding service where Bishop answers all our questions um, with the help of the Holy Spirit and using the Bible so that we know that the answers are right and correct and it will help us in our journey. You know, sometimes someone will say, oh, can I ask a silly question? I want to say that there are no silly questions this evening. We are all here to learn, so keep the questions coming. If you have any question, um, please type it on YouTube where you are watching us, or you can send an email to getunderstanding at christchurches.org. And we'll pick it up and uh, trust in God that we'll be able to answer all the questions. So, as always, please let's put our hands together as we welcome our very own Bishop James to this evening's service. Thank you very much, Papa, for once again giving us the opportunity to come and ask you all the many, many plenty questions that we have. It's always a joy to have get understanding. Amen. Amen. And um, before we start, I just want to say that we have a few questions that have come in, and we are going to start off with those. But keep your questions coming. If you have any, any questions uh, to the, the questions that are already here, please bring them. If there are new questions as well, bring them. And we are trusting God um, to move uh, during the service. Amen. Amen. We thank God for tonight. You are all welcome once again. We will trust that the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said when he comes, he will teach us all things. He is the teacher and he's the one going to teach us. I'm only an instrument in his hands, like a microphone in his hands. He will speak tonight. Um, let us share a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we gather this evening and we come before your presence to learn of your word. We pray that you would teach us and let your power also be manifested. Your word declares that on a particular day, as you taught the word, the power of God was also present to heal and to save. We pray in the name of Jesus, let there be the release of the teaching anointing in this atmosphere. Let everyone hearing us, oh God, communicate in such a way that they will have full understanding and will be able to apply your word in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. We bind witches and wizards and satanists and all kinds of satanic 
powers deployed against this service. We pull them down in the name of Jesus. We resist them in the name of Jesus. And we pray that your kingdom come in this service and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you very much, Papa. You're welcome. Uh, with your permission, um, I want to go right in. Uh, yes. Because I think the questions that have come are very interesting. And yes. I think we'll learn a lot. So I'll just um, go directly to the first one. So the question is about um, declarations that we do in church and in, in church gatherings. Yes. And, and we also do that. We have a declaration that we do at almost every service. That's right. And um, it's been asked if that's biblical. Mm. Um, because the argument is that only God has the power to decree anything mm. and to declare things. And it's erroneous to be ordering God to do anything or to decree things in prayer because it looks as if you are usurping God's authority when you do that. Mm. So um, are declarations and decrees biblical, and can we do that? Okay. Amen. Amen. We thank God for the question, and I believe that um, this has been very much common among especially Pentecostals and Charismatics. Uh, many times you hear, I decree and declare. And some people are holding the view that it is unbiblical. Or they are not sure whether it is really biblical for Christians to be making declarations over their lives, decreeing things over their lives. Um, and therefore, it appears as if we are trying to order God about or even taking God's place uh, when we decree things. And so there have been some people who believe that prophetic declarations being made in churches or by Christians is not biblical. Um, I want, first of all, to answer that it is biblical. There is the other aspect where people confuse positive confessions with faith declarations. They are two different things. What we do in church and what I believe many Christians do and many churches do are faith declarations that has its foundation in the Bible. It is different from positive confessions that has no biblical root. There are people of the New Age movement, and there are others who hold a view that the universe itself um, is it's a personality. Uh, so Christian science and some of those other um, false um, religions hold some of these views. So they believe when you make declarations, the Creation hears and creation obeys um, by means of positive confessions. But that is not the same as the Christian declarations of faith. And whenever we say something is biblical or unbiblical, we have to first of all find out whether it is in the Bible and in the correct context. Because sometimes you may find something in the Bible but it may not be biblical because of the context that has been taken out of context. So it is very important that we shouldn't quickly dismiss things that we don't understand and describe them as unbiblical. Uh, it is better to seek full understanding and do justice to the full counsel of God and be able to be sure whether this is in the Bible, is our declarations founded on the word of God. For instance, in Christ Church, we make our declarations and we say things like, Father, your word declares. 
that death and life lies in the power of the tongue. That is Bible. I declare that I shall not die but shall live. This is Bible because again, I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. It's in the word of God. So when we are making those declarations, we are making faith confessions and faith proclamations. And so there are two different things when we look at that. But then let me carry on to, I'm taking my time to teach on this one so that we can move forward. Um, the decree and the declare, um, we just have to find the English words for them. Um, to decree is to um, make a pronunciation or a pronouncement that has legal authority. So it becomes law or is legal. So there is a decree, sometimes military uh, governments rule by decrees. It's an order. It's not subject to discussion or argument or parliamentary conversation. It's a decree. So decrees are an edict or a law. Then a declaration is to make known a fact or a reality. So for instance, those of us who travel a lot, whenever you travel and enter another country, you are asked to declare your goods. That means make known the facts of what you are carrying. And then there is also the place for a decree. That means that one has law backing it. So we can make declarations that have got a decree behind them. Um, and so when it comes to the word of God, we can really decree and there's also a place where we can declare. Now, sometimes at a certain level of intercession and prayer, because there are levels in the spirit when you are praying, you get to a point where the utterances that are coming out from your lips are not things you have programmed before you went into prayer. And that is where it moves into the levels of decrees because the Holy Spirit is inspiring certain words and you are issuing certain commands in the spirit that are taking effect. So sometimes someone standing behind and hearing a man of God praying and start off or somewhere in the prayer begin to issue what sounds like laws or decrees, commanding things to move or not to move, uh, may be copied by people blindly and think, okay, they can also lift up their voice and begin to decree things. But sometimes it is at a certain level of intercession where you have come into contact with some entities. I don't know how to explain all here, but there are levels of prayer. There are levels of intercession. You get to a realm where you don't even want to stop. You get to a realm where it feels like time stops. It's not like we have prayed and you are looking at the time. One hour, no, it's not yet here. No, you, you are really deep in prayer. It is at those levels which I call the holy of holies type of intercession where the glory of the Lord is over you and the power of the Holy Ghost has taken you over. You begin to see things in the realms of the spirit. You begin to encounter powers of darkness. You issue decrees and they stand. But I want us to look at some scriptures and see whether biblical faith declarations are actually Bible or not, uh, having laid the following foundation. So first of all, the encounter David had with Goliath can be declared in the face of an emergency that by the words of God and by faith, you can speak a word of declaration or a decree and it will stand. When David made those statements in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 to 47, the Bible says David replied to the Philistine because when Goliath approached David, he also made some declarations. So when we make spiritual declarations, it can be spiritual God or spiritual Satan. Goliath 
uttered words which can be described as his declarations of faith, but his own is not rooted in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So would have described that as not biblical, but he made some declarations which are spiritual, but they are not of God. So he also created a spiritual atmosphere and he summoned the boy into it. The Bible says he cursed David by his gods. And he called the boy and said, today I will kill you. And he said, come to me, I will give your body to the birds of the air. Then David also spoke back. And David said, you come to me with a sword and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, which is the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, I will conquer you and kill you and cut off your head. Ladies and gentlemen, the young man speaking here, by faith, had no sword in his hand. He had a catapult. We don't cut off people's head with catapult. There's no sharp end of any catapult and stone. The Bible says David said that today, today, he was making a prophetic declaration. Today, sometimes we do that in church. We say, today, we declare. David said, today, when he was faced with an emergency, he didn't have a sword in his hand. The man coming against him was an experienced general and warrior who had a sword in his hand. David approached him and made a prophetic declaration. He made a declaration based on God's own word and said, I will conquer you and I will kill you and I will cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. David you don't even have a sword. You are talking about the whole mighty army of the Philistines. He said, today I'm also declaring by my words that I will give their bodies to the wild animals and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. The man is quoting scriptures. We know the Lord rescues his people. The Lord delivers from death. The Lord creates multiple escapes from death. David is summoning God based on the word of God. So he was making a declaration by faith and was approaching Goliath. And the Bible says, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. David said, this is the Lord's battle. And this, again, that statement is biblical because we learned later on that God came to King Jehoshaphat and said, the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Again, you see his Bible, David was quoting the word of God. He knew the word. He knew that the battle does not belong to man is the Lord. So David combined all these words and in a battle, he declared, he made proclamations that he will cut off somebody's ear and he wasn't having a sword. He said, today this will happen. These are declarations of faith based on the word of God and it's not positive confession. Totally different. If we look at another example in Proverbs 18, 21, the Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. So in short, the tongue has the power to bring death and life to the speaker. So when we speak prophetically or we make faith declarations or prophetic declarations, we are actually speaking life to situations around us by faith in the word of God because God's word says on our tongue, it's a very mysterious um, organ in our mouth 
It has power of life in it and it has power of death in it. And it says, those who love making use of it, the tongue, whether for good or for evil, will eat its fruit. So if you speak life with your tongue, you will eat the fruit of life. If you speak death with your tongue, you will eat the fruit of death. And so the consequences of what we say is so real. Words are spirit. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are life and they are spirit. So again, if we look at that scripture, then it is biblical to use your tongue to speak words of life and faith in situations where things don't look good, just like David's case that I described. So these things are faith declarations. They are not just positive confessions. For instance, in Job 22, verses 26 to 28, here we'll see it very clear in the Old King James and in the New King James, you find the use of the words decree and declare. In Job 22, 26 to 29, it says, For then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him. He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will give your offerings and the vows you have made. The Bible says when you do your prayer, and you honor pledges and offerings that you have made to God, it says, then you will also decree a thing. The old King James says, you will decree a thing. The new King James says, you will declare a thing. Things you haven't seen, you make announcement of them. You declare them into manifestation. And the Bible says, and it will be established for you. Unless we are saying this is not in the Bible. But the Bible says, when we meet these conditions with God, serve him, pray, honor our vows, we will decree things and it will be established for us so that light will shine on your ways. When they cast you down, you will say, exhortation will come. What do we call that? Declaration of faith. So when you are feeling down, you must say, exhortation will come. There is a lifting up. I haven't seen the lifting up, but I must declare it. The Bible says we must do this and all this was lined up with you shall declare a thing. You shall decree anything and it will be established for you. Exhortation will come, then the Lord will save the humble person. So you see, God will act based on what we say. So when we make faith confessions, they are truly biblical. Let me provide you further scriptures. For instance, God made a very profound statement in Numbers chapter 14, verses 28 to 29. Numbers 14, 28 to 29. God says, whatever you say, that is what I will do. And when the Israelites complained against him, they murmured so much that the journey has been too long. They have not yet arrived at the promised land the Lord promised them. They believe Moses has brought them here to kill them before the time. And they began to make statements like, we are going to even die here. And we are going to be buried here. We and all our children, we are going to die here. And then God comes in to say something that is so much connected to what we are sharing this evening. Verse 20 to 29. The Lord said to Moses, say to them, as long as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me 
shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, according to what you have said, so will I do to you. If this is how God operates and he does not change, then I don't want to say I will die. I will say I will live. I will say I will do well. I will say I will prosper. I will say all these things in the name of Jesus based on the word of God that God says whatever we say, that's what he will do. Let's carry on. In fact, even confession of faith in Jesus Christ to be born again is a declaration of faith. Because one have to say that I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and that I believe that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Were you there? No. You make a statement of faith, then God acts. Please look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Then you shall be saved. There must be a confession of faith in Christ. We haven't seen him. So if we make that confession of faith, that I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, and that I invite him to come into my life, and after which we say by faith that I believe I am born again now. You say we shouldn't say that. We have to say that to affirm the fact that it is then that God will move. That's how he has chosen to operate. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession is made that brings about the salvation. The mouth must utter something. Faith. So we speak these faith declarations like we do at Christ Church International by faith in the promises of the word of God. If any of you go back to all the confessions that we, made, we make in church before every service, you will find that every one of them has a scripture attached to them. I just did not put the verses there, but I put it in a way that we can say it as prayer and make declarations by faith. And it is working. And it works. One of the reasons why we need to be very careful when we are dealing with matters of faith is, is that we, we have to be careful that we don't put God in a box to say he doesn't work this way. Uh, some years ago, I preached a message on beyond the written word. That the framework of God's operation is in the word, but he can do things outside the word of God and still be within the word. You see, for example, if you were related or you were in the village when Mary broke the news that she's pregnant and that an angel visited her and that Joseph had not touched her and that she is pregnant. If she's taken to the, her pastors, the priests in those days, they will say, Mary, hold on. When we look into the word of God, we can find miracle babies being promised by prophecy. But in all the instances from the prophecy given to Abraham, the Bible says, and Abraham knew Sarah, his wife. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And Isaac knew Rebekah, his wife. And throughout the scriptures, until John the Baptist, all of them, they have seen the testimony that there was the involvement of a man, even though the prophecy came that despite your medical and gynecological condition, God is still going to give you a child. 
So there was a miracle of a baby, all right, Samson's parents, all of them, but there was that, that, that involvement of a husband with a wife to produce that. So they will say that when we look into the scriptures, where these miraculous births have taken place, there is no record that God has made a virgin to become pregnant before. So Mary, it is unbiblical. You see that it can be a very dangerous thing because God can do anything when it comes to the miraculous, when it comes to prophetic decrees and declarations. So Mary's situation could have been described as unbiblical and unheard of, and yet it is God. And yet she's carrying the most greatest miracle of the Son of God, and that's how God chose to do it. Don't you think that God could have let Mary get married properly and then do that? No, he doesn't want any argument about the paternity of the child that is born. And so God can do things like that. So we need to believe this mighty God for the greater things he can do, that he is a miracle-working God. So when a miracle happens and we can trace it in Scripture, then we can be confident that it is still God. Let's carry on with faith declarations. It is the way God operates. In the case of Abraham, who and his wife, Rebecca, um, Sarah, were childless for many, many years until... Um, Ishmael was brought into the picture. But God still went back to say his promise is with an Isaac who is to be born. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 to 5 and 15 to 16, that for this miracle to occur, God needed Abraham to make a prophetic declaration, a faith declaration or confession. He says, as for me, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, or Abram. Abram means exalted father. And for closer to 100 years, he just remained an exalted father. But your name shall be Abraham. Abraham, as we say it when we anglicize it. Abraham means father of many nations. Your name shall be so. So change your name now. Start making these declarations. You haven't seen the Isaac, but start calling yourself father of many nations. What is that God? What is God doing here? He's asking Abraham to make statements of faith. Call those things that be not as though they were. These are prophetic declarations. And then, for I have made you a father of many nations. That's why he's saying, and now you are called Abraham because you are now father of many nations. Then look at verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai anymore, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarah means mother of queens and kings and mother of nations. For I will bless her and also give a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So God is saying, before I will do which I have promised, you must start declaring it. So when we gather in church and we say lift your hands, it's not control. It's a, again, it's a symbolic representation that we surrender all to God as we make our declarations by faith. And so like Abraham... If we are expecting anything from God, 
And even when he gives a promise, he wants us to start calling the thing out. He wants us to start, start mentioning it, declare it, call it into existence. Based on the promises of God, based on the word of God, it becomes a declaration of faith in the word, and that is biblical. In Romans 4, 17, the scripture talks about the fact that God calls those things that currently doesn't exist as if they exist. That is a declaration of faith. Romans 4, 17 to 20. It says, as it is written, I have made you father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not currently exist as though they did. So when we make prophetic declarations, we are calling by faith those things that physically appear not to exist. We call them as if they exist. Because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, it is by faith that we understand that the wells were framed by the word of God and that the things we see are not made of things that do appear. That means the things we see were originally in the realm of the spirit. We call them into physical reality by words of faith. For the world was existing already. God called and said, let there be, and then it came. So when we become born again or we have the nature of Christ, we speak like that by faith. And it is not necessarily usurping God's authority. No, we are acting in the authority he has actually delegated to us by faith. And you will find out that the Bible says, and not being in weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Let me give you two more examples and then I will, I will pause here. You see, even our own prayers are indirectly declarations of faith. We ask things from God. And we, we confess that by faith. You see, Jesus said that blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes. So whenever we ask anything from God, even when we haven't seen it, we say, Father, I thank you, I have it. What is that? It's a statement of faith. It's a prophetic declaration. I haven't seen it, but I believe God has given it to me. And so when we look at scripture in Mark chapter 11, Jesus said to us, whatever we desire and pray, we will have what we say. So you see, what we say is so crucial to answer prayer. For instance, in the Mark 11 account, verses 12 to 14, and then verses 20 to 24, um, the Bible says the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When figs, don't when they are not yet in their season to bear fruit, they don't the leaves don't come out. But this time there was leaves, so it was easy to think there was food on it. So it was misleading. It was a very strange tree. Anyway, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. In response, Jesus said to the tree, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, this is not madness. I believe this is faith declaration. It's a prophetic declaration. He said, let no one eat of you again. His disciples heard it. That means he didn't whisper it. He shouted. And they heard it. He spoke on top of his voice. He made a declaration and a decree. 
Then in the morning, so this happened the night before, 12 hours later in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw that the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. How do we have faith in God? For I surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and where they were walking, there, were, there was a mountain ahead of them, so it became a, a teaching aid for him to use to say this is a complex situation, but no matter how complex the situation is, just like this tree, speaking to it to dry may look humanly impossible, but that is how we exercise faith in God. We speak something. So I spoke to the tree not to bear fruit, and I continued to believe that it would die, and it did. So when Peter asked, well, how did this happen? He said, I say to you, whoever will say to this mountain, be removed. Somebody must say something. And be cast into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. You will see four says in this statement. Whoever says to this complex situation, move out of the way, even though the thing is still there and will not doubt in his heart, he will have whatever he says, but believes those things he says, that's the third say, he will have whatever he says, the fourth say. So there must be some saying, and then there will be a manifestation. So when we declare by faith that there will be rivers in my deserts, we know that that is in Isaiah 41. Rivers in our deserts. And so every part of our declarations that we make in church is rooted in the word of God. And I believe that in many of the very, very good churches that do this, their declarations is also based on the word of God. And so you see that this is how God answers prayer. He says we should say something. And so when we gather and we say, we are speaking to mountains. We are speaking to impossible situations to move. Therefore, I say to you, whatever therefore you ask when you pray, Believe that you receive them and you will have them. And the believing is done by constant saying. Remember also that the scripture reminds us in Matthew chapter 16. Um, Jesus said, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. 16, 18 to 19. Matthew 16, 18 to 19. He says, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you shall bind. The key word there is the word, whatever you arrest whilst you are standing on this earth will be arrested in the spirit realm. And whatever you shall lose, allow. That means that we have been given power to allow or disallow things. So it means that when you stand on earth and make some declaration by faith in the word of God, there is a consequence in the spirit realm because the earth realm is controlled by the spirit realm. One of the reasons why some of these things come up is because anything that will destroy the work of the devil, Satan knows very well how to create controversy around it to make us think, oh, let's not make any declarations. It's not biblical. When you make declarations and God answers it, are you the one who answers the prayer? Has God complained? He hasn't. This sort of mindset makes you lose the spirit. May we be delivered from just being too rooted in the study of word without the spirit. We will become very dry and we will begin to argue for things that God himself has made his mind clear that we shouldn't talk about. Now, so we will see that 
Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we lose on earth will be loose in heaven when we pray in his name. So you will find out that it is not ordering God about. It is not trying to take the place of God. It is actually exercising our kingdom mandate as representatives of God on the face of the earth. For instance, when we cast demons out, we, we decree that they come out. That, that actually is the word. That one we don't declare. We don't suggest to demons. We command them to come out. And that power has been given to us. So the place of decrees in prayer, most of the time I've got to do with removing satanic presence in a place. So it is not ordering God about, it is affirmation of our faith. Now, verse 16 of Acts chapter 16 um, says that now it happened as we went to prayer, this is Paul and his companions, that a certain slave girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much gain through fortune telling. And the Bible says when he saw Paul and his companions, he said, these are the men of God that show us the way of salvation. And the Bible said this continued for some days. And Paul, being grieved in his spirit, turned and addressed the spirit in the girl. And he used a certain word. The Bible says in verse 18, this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. He commanded. So he has power to command, power to decree, issue an order to that power of darkness to stop what he's doing. And we have the mandate to do so. We are not supposed to be suggesting things to the devil. We are supposed to decree by faith. And it is so. Because curses are also decreed. That is why it takes a word. Remember the famous scripture, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that is risen against you, you shall condemn by speaking back. So the place of speaking back has been given to us. I can go on and on with Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. And he decreed, he spoke, he declared the word of the Lord by faith. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And that's how God does his things. We've seen he wants to do something with Abraham. He says, speak it out. Declare it. David spoke. Dry bones, he had to speak. God didn't do it. Somebody had to speak. So there's a mystery of declarations. And I pray that God will help us in Jesus' name. In 2 Peter 1, 4, one other very key scripture that will make people understand. We are not taking the place of God. But the Bible says, this is a very key scripture to answering some of these questions. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature. The King James says, we are partakers of his divine nature. We partake of it. It doesn't make us fully God, but we have a partaking of some form of his nature. Not his omnipotence, not his omniscience. But we have some form of partaking of his nature. That is why he left some things with us. Command demons to leave. And we are not suggesting to them. They have to leave. So that we escape the world's corruption that is caused by human desire. So when we look at all of this, we begin to see from the many things I have just shared in this short time with you. That it is biblical 
to make faith declarations. It is biblical to make faith affirmations. It is biblical to make prophetic declarations so long as they are based on the promises of God in the word of God. Let me pause here. Um, Thank you very much, Papa. You're most welcome. For the very in-depth um, explanation and answer to the question. Um, so it is biblical for us to make declarations mm. and um, decrees yes. because death and life is in the power of our tongue and um, it is our kingdom mandate. Mm. We have to speak. Um, and you also said that we have to make sure that we don't confuse positive confessions with faith declarations. Mm -hmm. So we've had a few follow-up questions that have come through. Okay. Um, the first one is that, is the difference between positive confession and faith declarations the content? So is, is the difference because one is based on the, the word of God or is, it, is the difference because of who you are believing to bring the declarations to pass? Or yes. both? Um, no. It is the content and who you are believing God for. See, faith, uh, positive confessions did not originate from the scriptures. Positive confessions, you know, has its roots in psychology and other um, religions who has faith in matter, in the cosmos, in, in the world. Um, and they, you know, that's where you have this, because we have to draw the line because of those statements like confession brings possession, um, especially when people, if, if we don't draw the line, people will just think that they can just don't do anything and just confess anything. Um, but that is not the way it is. So it's like, okay, if you are going through psychological problems, just, just say this to yourself. Uh, so it becomes like, um, you know, like some methods but in this case, our faith is in God. Uh, there are psychological methods that are given to people to, to psych them up. Uh, that's not what we are talking about. Even though the root of this is in the word of God, it, it has been taken in a way that you have all these other groupings, you know, right from, uh, you know, keep your mind clear, uh, you know, mindedness and all this yoga thing, it's got its root there in the Eastern religions, etc. So, you know, don't think anything negative, just think positive, and the positive forces will come. No, we are not talking about positive forces. So we want to draw the line. Who's, who have you believed? So it is more of whose word we believe, the promise of the word of God. You know, the scripture says in Isaiah that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Again, on him, not some blankness, you know, not some blank your mind and, you know, nothing and in a quiet place and breathe in and breathe out and uh, positive energy and those things. No, that's, when it comes to this one, it is confessions based on the promises of God's word and believing him that to whom you have made the declarations who is God, he is well able to answer you, not the creation, not nature. I hope I'm able to. Yes, please, Papa. Okay. Thank you very much. So it's about the fact that it's based on the word of God yes. and also that you are believing. Your faith is in Christ. Uh, right. It's in God mm. um, to bring it to pass. 
um, that brings me to the next, the follow-up question, actually, another right. one. Okay. So for us in church, we mm. have our declaration that we make. Mm. Can you also um, take it and make it on your own? Um, say those words and do the declaration on your home, uh, on your own. So, for instance, if you are praying at home, can you make those declarations, or does it always have to be led in a church gathering? Oh no, you can. It's because it is Bible based. It's not. It's not um, linked up to the fact that God won't answer if it is pronounced um, outside the the church building. It is, it is for, for us. It's just that when we come together, we, we want to um, make that prayer um, of faith together as the body of Christ um, and as a church. But individually, we can also take it up and actually make that declaration. Thank you, Papa. And then I have one last uh, follow-up question on, yes. on this one. So the question says... Um, We've been talking about the fact that declarations, you make the declarations and with faith it will come to pass. So the question says, what declarations come to pass and what don't? Because if it's our kingdom mandate and we know that um, you've given us so many examples of um, declarations in the Bible, why is it that we cannot declare someone well or declare a dead person to wake up? That kind of Because we know that in the scriptures, for instance, God heals. So why can I not then declare a sick person well? Okay. So we have to, first of all, see, when we come to declarations, that is why sometimes we, de we describe them as prophetic declarations. Are, are they prophetic? When we say it's prophetic, did the Holy Spirit inspire it to be said at this time? Um, we have a normal way of praying, and that is to go to God in the name of Jesus and make requests. The Bible says in everything, Philippians 4, 6, by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So if someone is sick, we first of all don't start declaring. We start asking God. It is in the process of asking God in prayer that the Lord will inspire either a scripture or a word to, to declare. It is that which brings the miracle. That is what we call the rima. So, so that it doesn't become a formula that's and it's one of the reasons why, from the beginning of our prophetic declarations, I didn't make it available to every member of the church. And I said, when we come to church, we declare. So that I wanted to avoid the situation where it becomes just a method of prayer without inspiration. And so we must, first of all, pray about something, and then the Holy Spirit will inspire what must be declared um, in that situation. So, for instance, sometimes we have had to pray um, over a situation. I, I do remember my family was going through some challenges, uh, not my nuclear family as in my wife and children, but my uh, wider family in terms of my siblings and, and, and family. And as we prayed about it for some time, I actually took it upon myself to pray because of certain trends that was going on. And then I had an instruction to, to, to get into, uh, you know, family house, daddy stuff, and get some things out. And then as I continued to pray, the Lord inspired a scripture that go back there and make this declaration at this part of the house. First of all, get the confirmation. Anyway, you find it in this diary, that, that, that. And I found that. Then he, that scripture was inspired from Ezekiel, that the fathers would not eat sour grapes 
for the children's teeth to be set on edge. When I started praying, that scripture was not there. At a certain depth of intercession and fasting, that scripture was inspired. And so I went and made that pronouncement over the place. Uh, later I learned that, okay, well, before I was born, there were certain things there, etc. And all those things had then been dealt with and therefore released the family from what they were going through, especially those among the family who were going through that particular challenge. So, you see, we had prayed and I have prayed to a certain point until a word of prophecy comes from the word of God that go and make this declaration there. Go and make this announcement at the place that every power of darkness and covenants that were established before people were born into this house, fathers will not eat sour grapes for the children's teeth to be set at edge. We reverse it in the name of Jesus. Father will eat sour grapes and their teeth will be set at edge, but the children will be set free. And this is a declaration that was made and that because it is Rima, the powers of darkness will have to surrender and back off. So in terms of prophetic declarations, let me put in a caveat here. You need to be interceding, make a request from God over that matter. Somewhere in the prayer, the Holy Spirit will inspire a rima, which must be declared, and that brings about the healing, that brings about the miracle, and that brings about the solution. That is how these things are handled, so that we are so that we move away from having some form of religion and then a ritual that then becomes, they said this church is the only way we pray. No, God cannot be boxed in. We need to first of all take our request to him in prayer. In the midst of prayer, there will be, if you are praying properly, there will be a voice of God. There will be an inspiration. A scripture you haven't thought about will come in your spirit. When you start seeing that one, start praying that, start declaring that. Then something is happening in the spirit and that is the right word to deal with the matter. So there's so much of the written word of God, which is the logos. But then when we pray to a point, the rima is activated. God energizes one of these scriptures and that is what is needed to deal with the matter at that point. That becomes what we must prophetically declare. Amen. Amen. Last question. Yes. There have been several <laughs> last questions, but we will, we will take more last questions. So um, you've, you've spoken about the Rima mm. and you've spoken about the Logos mm. um, in relation to prophetic declarations. Yes. So the question is, mm. is it correct to declare the Logos all the time? Um, I mean, not because there's something in particular that you are praying about mm. or fighting against, mm. but because you have faith in the word of God. Yeah. And then when you have a rima about something that you are praying about, then mm. you make that declaration as well. That's right. The scripture says in 2 Peter 1.19 that we have a more sure word of prophecy. That is the written word. We already have it. So we start from there. In fact, any form of prayer must be based on there to start with. It is as we begin to pray that the Holy Spirit will even begin to expand it and learn to show us how to lift it in prayer and actually correctly target it to where it must go. But it is not wrong to start off and even if you have heard nothing, speak the word. There is already the promises of God in God's word. It is sufficient in itself. And just that when it gets to a certain level, God may inspire another scripture in addition to that. But that can be the starting point. And so it is not erroneous or wrong to pray and declare. He has made a promise that if anyone is sick, we should pray and that he's the healer. So we start him from there. In the end, he determines that he will heal. Um, if someone dies, we can go by faith to want to raise the person. 
And if God chooses to raise, praise God. If he doesn't, fine. But when we make the attempt, it doesn't make us to be defeated. It is who answers the prayer. Uh, and and that, is the, that is the thing. I, I do remember years ago, one of my cousins died. I, I made the attempt to want to raise him. Uh, it didn't rise, but I, I still believe God. And I have not stopped serving God. Uh, it is his choice. So, but I still went to him to say, I want, I want him to live a little bit more. Father, so I went to pull his hand uh, and prayed. Uh, yes, we must, we must believe God for these things as well. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I'm not going to say it, but I have another Oh, question. ask it. Yes, we have, I mean, we've got time. So. Um, is there a place or is there ever a point where we misuse declarations and decrees? Um, I ask this because sometimes you hear people um, praying and I decree and declare, and all you hear is I decree and declare. Um, and I think for for people who may not be Christians, they hear these things and they feel and think a certain way. Yeah. So is there a place of misuse of dec decrees and declarations? And is there a point where we have to be careful about what we are decreeing and declaring? Um, yes. I, I believe that just like every other thing, there is abuse. Um, and sometimes it is because we don't do a meticulous study because we had a man of God decree and declare. Um, personally, I, I don't like, you see, we, we don't need to pref prefix our statement with I decree. Well, whatever we say will be a decree. We don't need to say, I prophesy to you in the name of Jesus. Prophesy. Speak the word. The word of God that is being declared is the prophecy. So we don't need to announce to say, but again, I see sometimes on Facebook, I see people write, you know, I decree and declare, I decree. And I was like, can you, can you say what you want to say without saying I decree? Because that I decree will not shake the devil. <laughs> you know, what you say must be a decree. Because sometimes you may say I decree and declare, and actually what you finally say is not a decree, and neither is it a declaration. Mm. It's just some, something that you have just said which has no basis in Scripture. So we just need to be very careful how we um, copy things blindly uh, because somebody... Is praying in a particular way. You don't know what depth the person went into to begin to make that statement. Uh, or it is an instruction from the Lord to speak this way to the powers of darkness within that jurisdiction to say, I declare to you by the word of the Lord, you know, because he's having an encounter already. But sometimes somebody doesn't know all that is going on and the dynamics of the spirit when the person has been praying for this one. All that you hear is that suddenly the pastor is saying these things. And then somebody says, Let me, these words are very powerful. Let me pick them, copy them, and start repeating them. And, and that then becomes a formula without the spirit. So again, we have to be very careful that we don't... Yes, spiritual things are real. We don't need to please unbelievers. But there are times that if you are doing them, you have knowledge. So that when an unbeliever, even in their moment of wanting to make mockery of you, comes to make a, 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 probably an inquiry, you should have enough scripture biblically to convince the person rather than you two, you don't know what you're about. And then it makes them feel like, look at them. They are just fanatics every time. They are just say, I decree and declare. Situations are still the same. Uh, COVID patients are on the ward. Go and raise them and stop all these things. I decree and declare. They say these things to make mockery of us. But the point is, have we heard God? And... Have we tried to understand this whole thing so that we can do it with knowledge um, rather than just uh, copying 
like that. And, and like you said, sometimes you've had people pray and you don't hear anything except I decree, I declare, I decree, I declare. And they are not saying the thing too, but they are decree and declaring, decree and declaring. You know, it's just like when they go fire, fire, then it becomes like some jama song. In this, uh, the prayer then becomes like jama song. I mean, you, come on, you know, let's, let's move away from these things and, and let's have some real encounters with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Papa. Um, this is it's very in-depth. Um, and I think you have equipped us um, to be able to decree and declare properly uh, with faith based on the word of God. And to be able to also give answers to people who might have questions um, if we ever um, meet them. Please, can I move on to my second? <laughs> yes, <laughs> my I think second we, question. We, we have, f- yeah, I think it's eight thirty-two. All right, we'll see how far we'll go. Right. Okay. So we are moving from um, decreeing and declaring, but if you have any questions on that, please send them through. Um, even if we don't get back to them today, we will um, come back again and answer those questions. But um, the second question, main question I have is also a very interesting one. I think it's a question that we also hear a lot from um, unbelievers um, and even from people who are in the faith as well. And essentially, it says that we are all joint heirs and co-laborers, so we don't need spiritual fathers. Is it biblical to call someone your spiritual father or sometimes spiritual mother? And um, there are two scriptures that have been used um, to back this question, please. I would like to read them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. It says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's filled. You are God's building. And then Romans Romans 8, verse 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And uh, people stand on these two scriptures and say, we are all equal, we don't need, you don't need to have any father apart from God, um, he's our only father. Please, can you give us some um, explanations on that? Okay, thank you, thank you for the question. Um, it's a very important question, especially in our days. Um, most of the time, some of these things start coming up because um, something has been abused in many other churches. Uh, in the past few years and months, it's been so much in the news about you know uh, spiritual father and things like that and how eventually they have abused uh, people you know, from finances to sexual abuse and um, all kinds of immorality uh, in the name of a spiritual father and spiritual son and spiritual daughter relationships. Uh, And so because of that, whenever people see these things, they suddenly, without looking at the whole uh, council of scripture, begins to say it's unbiblical because... uh, these spiritual father things, they end up doing these things with the ladies in the church, with the men in the church, and all those things. Um, but the fact that something is abused uh, does not mean that it is unbiblical uh, because you are dealing with humans who may abuse something. Um, there have been doctors who have abused their responsibilities. 
uh, we haven't stopped going to see the doctors. And we haven't shut down anybody from calling themselves a doctor if they are qualified. Uh, because some, some doctor killed babies or, you know, killed the patients that came or actually uh, was raping the women that come by giving them sedation and doing strange things which are not authorized, etc. Doing surgeries they are not supposed to do just to make money. You know, so, but we haven't stopped doing that. Uh, in the same way, when it comes to spiritual uh, fathers or mothers in certain contexts, uh, we have to look back into the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures that have been quoted, they are correct scriptures, just that in context, they are out of context when it comes to this particular situation. The scriptures on we are God's fellow workers. It is true we are God's fellow workers. The scripture in Romans 8, 16 that says, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ is also correct. But they are talking about our place. When we are born again, we are all equal in the sight of God. We are all children of God. And that is where sometimes the lack of proper breakdown of the scriptures occur, where since we are all children of God, how do you become father over me? But the reality is that 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 1 to 2, is a scripture I want us to read, then we will look at, because these scriptures were written by Paul. The two scriptures we read, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are joint heads. Romans 8, 16 to 17, we are, uh, sorry, we are God's fellow workers in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Romans 8, 16, we are joint heads, joint heads with Christ. Uh, but 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 2 says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So again, you see Paul even describing Timothy as fellow laborer. This all refers to our position in Christ from our salvation perspective. We are all saved and we are equal in Christ as saved. However, the same Paul who preached we are laborers or heirs with Christ also wrote Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 18. Um, please read that for me. Ephesians 4, 11 to 18. Mm -hmm. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Amen. Now, that's a very long scripture. But if we take the verses, especially 11, 12, 
and 13, and we will see that he says Christ gave gifts to men. The, the same man of God used by the Holy Spirit to write, we are joint heirs with Christ. That is our salvation position. When it comes to the order of structure in the house of God, then among us, there are some people who are carrying some anointing that enables them to become apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and pastors to do what? To equip the believers. So if we were all equal, how is it that some people are supposed to equip the others? That means that when it comes to the structure in the house, we are not equal. In terms of the co-laborers, there are others who equip the laborers to do. So we are co-laborers in the context that they are the equippers and, and they are the ones who do the work of the ministry. So within the house, there is a structure. And within that house of God, despite the fact that we are all born again, then in the house of God, as far as structure is concerned, there is a leadership placed in the house. And they are supposed to equip the rest of the believers. Because if we are all equal, then we don't need equipment. But if the same man of God is telling us here by the same Holy Spirit that some among us are supposed to equip others, then in terms of ranking and structure, we are not the same. In terms of salvation, we are equal. Now, if that scripture is correct, then you see that leaders are fathers in a way. But then let's explore the scriptures further because we will see biblically at least what Paul was teaching us here. Um, please come with me to our first one is 1 Corinthians 4.17. If calling anybody a spiritual father, now let me clarify something. Whenever we say spiritual father, I think it's, that is where the confusion starts. See, the proper description is a father in the faith. When we use the, when I use the word spiritual father a lot, and I know what it means, that I'm not equating or elevating any man to the level of God. You know, so when people hear, they say, the only God is spiritual father. We don't have spiritual fathers. No, we know when we say certain words. We know what we actually mean. It may not come out well, but actually we know that we are talking about a father in the faith. One who mentors, one who is there for you, one who is guiding you, one who is teaching you the word, feeding you the word, fed you the word throughout as being that inspiration, that father figure in the faith who is instructing, guiding, teaching, equipping. That is a spiritual father. And we are talking about father in the context of the spiritual fact that we are spiritual beings. We are born again, but we are not taking the place of God. For the avoidance of doubt, the right usage is father in the faith. Father in the faith. Okay, Father in the faith. Now, the same Paul, if, as we are saying, um, Paul has said that we are joint heirs. Now, he's the same man being led by the Holy Spirit says that, no, but in the house, there is a structure. Now, let's look at this body of scriptures and see that the man himself is making reference to some people as his sons and referring to himself as a father. So, let's take 1 Corinthians 4.17. 1 Corinthians 4.17 mm -hmm. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, mm. who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Amen. Amen. You remember that when we started, I asked you to read a scripture, which is the um, First Thessalonians 3. Mm -hmm. 
He said, I sent Timothy, our co-laborer. Now we are seeing him describing this same co-laborer as my beloved son in the Lord. So we have fathers in the Lord or father in the faith. This is the right description. But, you know, when we say spiritual, we know that we, we know what we mean. Just that some people like to stretch things too much. People, when we say we have a spiritual father, we are talking about the father in the faith. We are not saying that that man has become spiritual. We know there's only one father, the father of all fathers. When Jesus one day said, call no man father on the earth, and the people who argue this particular thing always also quote that scripture. And I've always asked them, have you stopped your children from calling you father? <laughs> Why is that when it comes to church, you want to, because somebody abused that? Yes, somebody abused it, but it doesn't mean the position of father itself is bad. So you, even Jesus said, call no man father. But the context of the essence you see, when the Hebrew word for those words, when it talks about father, it's talking about call no man, you know, the essence of a father. Because there's only one true father and all earthly fathers are copying him. It is that true father who brought, brought us into existence ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. Every earthly father has already taken what has been given to him, passed it on to the womb of a woman, and then a baby comes. And then he becomes responsible for it. That makes him father. But there is the true father who made all of us. So every earthly father itself is copying that father. And that's why Jesus said, call no man a father in the essence like the way you refer to God. But then that same verse of scripture, we will come there, you find that same scripture that people only pick the father. He said, call no man teacher. So if you teach in a school, would they call you teacher? Would you respond? Those that argue against this. So Get scriptures in context so that we don't get them out of line. But here, let's take it methodically. Paul writes and says that my son, my beloved son, Timothy, if he is his son, what is Paul? Father. Because Paul is not a woman. He can't be mother. So that means we have a father here. Remember, Elisha referred to Elijah as my father, my father. Even when God was about to take Elijah away, he ran after and said, my father, my father. And God was not nervous. He knew the context that Elijah was, being, was not being elevated to compete with him as heavenly father. Our next verse of scripture to support this is 1 Timothy 1.2. 1 Timothy 1.2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, mm. grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, you see that Paul had many souls. So, you know, he has one a little bit. He said, a true son in the faith. So you see what I'm talking about, father in the faith. So we have a biblical basis for it. Father in the faith, son in the faith. Which faith? The faith of the Christian faith. Our faith in Christ. Is that not a spiritual thing? So, when we say spiritual, it's not spiritual. <laughs> Just a spiritual one, the, uh, uh, spiritual, spiritual. So the spiritual is your problem. Don't worry, it's father in the faith. Paul describes this same Timothy who was co-laborer as my true son in the faith. So there exist in the faith sons and fathers in the faith. Please, let's carry on. 1 Timothy 1.18. 1 Timothy 1.18, 
This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Amen. Amen. So again, we see the apostle Paul write and say, son Timothy. Now he writes to him and even calls him son Timothy. That means son knows this is father. That is very, very clear in scripture. So if we say it is unbiblical to refer to anybody as a son in the faith or father in the faith, then is Paul out of line? Because we are seeing more than one scripture where that is coming up. And out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Let's carry on. 2 Timothy 1, 2. 2 Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Timothy, a beloved son. Okay. Let's move on to Titus 1, 4. Titus 1, 4. Titus 1, 4. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, mm. grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. So Timothy was not the only son. There was Titus as well. So there were sons. And that means if his son is a father, if he's calling this one son and that one son, that means who is he? If you go to Timothy now, he will tell you my, my father in the faith, Paul. And he writes them letters and describes them. That tells you the depth of the relationship that he's not even calling them. Timothy, my son. Titus, my son. But let's now look at something very instructive where the whole church, he even describes the church as his children and he is their father. That one is so clear, black and white. First Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 17. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Amen. Amen. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, mm. who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Amen. Amen. So again, this time he's telling the whole church in Corinth, you may have many instructors, there will be many pastors, but you have only one father. Again, he uses very clear, I am your father. I have begotten you in the faith. In fact, the NIV says, I became your father through the gospel. So he's the same person who wrote and said we are jointers. Now he comes in to say, when it comes to structure, leadership, and relationship in the house, there is a father and there are sons. Now he says even the whole church, he's the father and they are his children. And he says, I became your father through the gospel. And then he says to the church, our common faith. So, um, sorry, to, to, the, to, to the church he says, my, my beloved son Timothy, whom I love, I'm sending him to you uh, to give some few instructions, etc. So you will see the relationship between these sons and fathers that they, they pick on from them. It's the same Timothy said that the things you have heard from me, preach the same things, do similar things. And then he says, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, so he's not taking the place of God. 
is the place of a guide, a mentor, a leader. God places us in such uh, relationships within the house of God. The fact that it has been abused by others does not mean it is not biblical. The challenge I have with those who come out shouting like this is because they have some experience in another church. Suddenly, some bad experience in another church makes every other thing unbiblical. And that is a wrong way because that means that they themselves are walking in error in describing something that is Bible as unbiblical. So the fact that you have a bad experience of something does not ex mean that the thing is bad. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, the Bible talks about the elders who direct the affairs of the church. Well, they are worthy of double honor, especially those who work is preaching and teaching. So even though we are all equal, we have been told that some people, their salary must be double. Their honor must be double in the house. Their remuneration must be double. They are elders, they are pastors, they are leaders who rule in the house. If we are all equal, how is it that we have some people who rule in the house of God? So you could see the context here that we are all equal in terms of our salvation, but when it comes to structure, order in the house of God, there are rankings. And the Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17, should be the, the last verse of scripture I think I want to uh, quote here. Hebrews 13, 7 to 17. Hebrews 13, 7 to 17. Sorry, verse 7 and then verse 17. Okay. So Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 7. Mm -hmm. Remember those who rule over you, mm. who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Okay, so let's pause there. Remember those who rule over you. This was being written to Christians. That we are all the same. We are all co-heirs. But some people rule over us. So some people have been given grace and anointing to rule over us. In fact, 1 Corinthians um, 12 says, and God has set in the church first apostles, prophets, evangelists, workers of miracles, helps, etc. God has set in the church. So the church is one, we are all saved, but in terms of structure, there is a set up in the house. And then we are told in Hebrews 13, 7, those who rule over you, he's not talking about politicians. Mm. Then he, in order not to be confused, he said those who spoke the word, those who have been teaching you the word, those who led you in the way of God, they are, they rule over you. And the Bible says you must honor them. Then look at verse 17, please. Verse 17. Mm. Obey those who rule over you mm. and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that will be unprofitable for you. So this Amen. scripture again, you see, those who say we are all equal, then there's a spirit of insubordination, disrespect, therefore in the house there's no order. We are all equal. You can't tell me what to do here. No, the scripture says those who rule over you is repeated. Submit yourself to them. I thought we are all equal. Why should I submit? Again, for the avoidance of doubt, which I believe for theological arguments in Bible school, there's always the thought, we don't know who wrote Hebrew. But when I read Hebrews and I read all the epistles, I can find one voice there. Paul wrote Hebrews. I believe it. And the same man is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, some people rule over us. We must submit to them, those who spoke the word of God to us. For they watch over our souls. I thought we are equal. Who is watching over my soul if we are all equal? 
but they have a certain spiritual status in the realm of the spirit, they watch over our souls as one that must give account. When you are engaged in certain levels of spiritual warfare and intercession, certain depths of ministry, you understand there are some things one member or one pastor may be dealing with and struggling. The senior pastor comes and he commands the thing leaves because he occupies a certain position in the spirit that is recognized by the powers of darkness at that level. So it's not just position, it's ranking in the spirit. As I always say before, I like wearing suits and all that, but before I'm suited, I'm suited in the spirit too. So a demon doesn't embarrass you. And so there are levels and rankings. Your senior pastor sits in a certain position in the spirit. So we are not equal. We are equal in our common faith and salvation, but in terms of ranking and anointings, we are not the same. And it brings humility and order into the house of God. It is God who set the church so. Remember, it is the house of God. First Timothy 3, Paul said, if I delay in coming, that you will know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is called the church of the living God, the ground and pillar of the truth. So it is the house of God, and it is God who calls the shots there. There will be people in the house of God who may mess up the things in the house of God. There will be men of God who may mess up things in the house of God. There was a Gehazi that worked with a true prophet of God and he would have been the next pastor that would take over, but he was corrupt. It did not make the prophetic ministry irrelevant. It did not make Elisha a very bad pastor. Jesus had Judas in his team. The existence of Judas did not mean Jesus was a very bad pastor and he couldn't raise and mentor people well. Sometimes you can sit under the best pastor and best ministry and yet your own attitude and behavior you are not changing will have bad knots in the system. But it doesn't render the whole ministry that it is unbiblical. And the same thing when it comes to father, we have to look at the word father. That is where you have to be concerned. So isn't it somebody is called a spiritual father? You have to ask yourself, is that person playing a fatherly role? No father has sex with his children. So if a father is doing that, then it's not a father. He can even have the title, but it's not functioning because that thing, the word father is not a noun, it's a verb. It's a doing word. It is responsibility. It is laying down yourself for your children to walk on. You become the bridge that they cross from one end to the other. You sacrifice. The father sacrificed his son. Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Fathers pay the price. That's father. So somebody can carry title and misbehave. It does not render the word father, the function father, obsolete. Let me Amen. pause here. Amen. Amen. So we have a few um, follow-up questions okay. <laughs> as okay. usual. Okay. So, um, Papa, you said that um, this question has come about because it's the, the relationship has been abused um, mm. by some people. Yeah. So how do you, as the father, mm. not you, but general, general question, as yes. a father, yes. As the father, how mm. do you prevent, how do you make sure that you don't abuse the relationship? And as the son or the daughter, what can you also do to make sure that you are not abused in, in so not just sexual abuse, but mm. all the different abuses mm. that can happen mm. in a father, son, father, daughter in the Lord relationship. Mm. Are there any, you call them rules of engagement um, for such a relationship? And um, yes, I believe that anything in scripture has got its set rules. Um, you will find out that 
Paul, again, writing to his son Timothy, said to him that you have followed my manner of life and you have observed my conduct. Um, and so there were ethical practices that go with it, that Paul is saying these are the above-the-board um, way of conducting yourself in the ministry. And so when you are privileged to have God's children come around you and God makes you a father, actually you didn't make yourself father over them. I have always believed that. I didn't choose my father. And that means that when it comes to spiritual things, it is also possible that there's someone that God really, you could see that when you come around, you feel, I think I have something here, you know, and their relationship builds on naturally. It goes on um, when we submit ourselves, etc. But then we must have guidelines. You know, the, the, the father must set the example. In some of the places where there have been abuse, I, I, I don't want to uh, go into some of those details here, but it, it starts off and you wonder that, Sometimes it is because the people have not been taught the word. So when the abuse starts, they can't see that this is an infringement of the word of God. You see, because if, if it's sexual abuse, you, you, if you're not teaching on holiness, and you yourself, you're not teaching it, when you start making advances on a lady that you say is your daughter in the Lord, why can't she resist? I mean, you yourself, do you have conscience? If you have been teaching on this, you will not make that effort. You know, even if you are tempted by the devil himself, you exercise self-control. But, you know, some of those places, it doesn't happen. And so I know of a church where the abuse has been so rampant. They started very well. They were right. But, you know, you can't, you can't be playing with the sister's bead. And I say, oh, as a father, I can do this. You know, you, you can't do that. There, must, there is a line that you must set for yourself. And it's something that you must intentionally teach so that those who don't know will get to know. You have to understand that as a father, your position will be admired. I mean, people will admire you. Young people will admire you. Young ladies will admire your position. Um, your oratory, the grace of God, the anointing, all these, they are normal things. But then you must intentionally teach what is proper ethical boundaries so they get to know. It goes into their head. Even when they are infatuated and even cross the line, you will act as a true father and, and learn to keep them at bay so that one day when they grow, they realize that, oh, even in their naivety, you did not take advantage of them. You are a father. You know, so I believe that there must be clear boundaries as to how far we can go with certain things. And then also we make sure that, you know, I, I remember years ago, and I'm sure if they are listening, they will, they will say to you, uh, those who were there from Holy Ghost Center days and all of that, I, I keep teaching them. And then sometimes the young ladies, they will come to the house, ask so many questions. We, you know, we spend the night round the clock, Friday night, we pray, and then they come and they ask a lot of questions. And then sometimes I say to them, if the devil tempts me and I start bringing my mouth near you, slap me. You know, I, it, it's just, a, you know, it's, it's something I say all the time. I think recently somewhere in Ghana, I think two years ago at the parents' rally, one of them was married and came with their children. and said, remember what Papa said? <laughs> Slap me. You know, so we still remember that. They still remember those things. But you were, I was trying to make sure that I put the boundaries in their head, you know, that it goes this way. And some of them had all the freedom. They, they could come, I mean, they work in the house, do a lot of things in the house, help in cooking, so many things. Once I was working, I came back from work, and they have just taken over our bedroom. They, they have slept on the bed. That, that's how far those ones could come. But, you know, and many times I would say to them, hey, 
you can do this here, but don't do that on the bed of any other man you see. They are not like me. You know, it's because you have built these sorts of things with them. They are confident and they are, they, they are very comfortable with your presence. They know where the lines are and they know you won't do anything to them. This has been built over many years, but then I try to caution them. It won't work on the other person's room and bed. So you know your limits to that. So definitely there have to be an intentional um, work by the father. You see, you set the pace. For the ones who are sons and daughters, they are sons. Sometimes they are so loyal to you that they can be blind to scripture. So you must be very responsible in setting the, the tone and say, look, it goes this way. It goes this way. And these are the guidelines by which we relate. This is how far we can go. We don't cross this line. You said that, that thing. You must be the one to initiate that. They won't know where to start from. But a true and responsible father will have to set the boundaries. And I think that that is um, one of the best ways uh, to really approach it. And, and I believe that there's no, no other person who has called me a father. And none of all these daughters from all these 25 years can say I did anything untoward towards them. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Papa. Um, so. More questions. <laughs> yes. Papa. Yes. Let's go. Um, if if you know someone uh, who is who has a spiritual father that's abusing the relationship, or if you are someone who happens to be in such a an abusive uh, spiritual father, daughter, or son relationship, mm. what do you do? Um, it's a very, you know, it's easy to say, come out of it. Uh, it all depends on the trust. See, most of the time, trust is so betrayed that the person doesn't know what to say. You know, sometimes, um, when you don't have an experience, it's very easy from the from people's position to just condemn, why couldn't she shout? Um, and I've also realized that the trust is so strong that when the corrupt spiritual father um, made those advances to take advantage of the spiritual daughter, um, she was so shocked that she froze. And those are the things that sometimes they don't say. Uh, that's what happens to people who are raped by people who they trust and people who, uh, you know, like family and things. They say, why didn't you shout? You, you, you need to get into the psyche of the person. They, they were too shocked. And that's where, you know, things uh, go on. I, I know a case like that where it's the same thing, you know. And it didn't happen, but she, she explained to me and Pastor Jesse how she was shocked when, her, when the pastor made that effort. Um, and she said if it had happened, she was married. You know, she said it, she would have had herself to blame. And I remember Pastor Jesse, I said, so why didn't you get her? I said, you don't understand. I, I was too shocked that it's coming from him. Mm -hmm. um, and if it wasn't the other call from another general overseer, I don't know what would have happened because I was too shocked, frozen. You see, not everybody has the tenacity to move in such situations because people respond to stress situations and, and, and you know, such shocking situations in a way that they rather freeze and you might think they have actually opened up, but actually it, it's not consent and that's why it becomes a rape. Um, so when these things are going on, the first thing I would recommend is to report it. Um, because trying to address it with him, depending on his, does he have a fear of God? 
uh, may dismiss you. And in some cases, we have heard that that's exactly what happened. This is nothing. You don't have to be afraid. Uh, you know, it's little children who are afraid of these things. Uh, but find a way to report it. I believe that there must be a report. And the report <laughs> is two ways. Um, sometimes, in certain places where there's order, it can go to his wife. But sometimes it can be killed there. Uh, if the wife is not spiritually mature, in order to protect the husband and the ministry, they may turn it around and say, probably you tempted him and you were trying to do this. And it's a false, even a false accusation you are bringing up. So sometimes it, it doesn't work there. Uh, but if there is discipline and the fear of God and the woman of God is also matured, then that confidence uh, will be handled properly because she will know who deals with him. You know, many times if she tries to uh, approach it, there will be a fight, you know, to be like husband-wife thing. But she will raise it and say, oh, I can't handle this, but I think I know who among his contemporaries or who above him will be the best person to handle this. Otherwise, based on this same approach, we have to look for the one that he looks up to and go in confidence to say, this is the experience. And I think that is where they will also find a way to come in because whatever be the case, someone must step in. And it depends on the nature of it. Um, and it's not only sexual abuses, but there are, there are financial abuses, there are abuses of people's, you know, um, wealth, uh, properties, uh, and things like that. There have been occasions where, you know, get out of my house and let me come in, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, there's also that sort of dominance. Um, I know a case that was brought to my attention, and I mean, this young man has just gotten married, and uh, this man is just saying, this is how I serve my spiritual father, so you too, you must do the same thing, you know. Leave your wife, children, come to my house on Friday uh, night, come in, clean the whole place, Saturday, come and iron all my things, Sunday, yeah, there's a place for that, but you know, it's not, and it's like, the whole day is occupying him. He said, I said, no, this is how, me too, this is how they, was, they made me, this are now we are approaching levels of abuse of the trust and the relationship, you know, so we, we must be careful, but when some of these things are going on, we have to find a Jehoshaphat to go to, someone who has an influence over him, some, there's always someone who is an influence over, over someone. Even among us as senior pastors uh, with other friends of ours, we know who among us deals with, with who, you know. So uh, I won't mention his name. Like Paul <laughs> says that uh, I know a man in the spirit and he was still talking about himself. But we know among us certain areas that you are, you are the one that comes in to say, when these matters come, say, Charlie, you are not doing well. You have to get this. So that comes to you. So the, among the relationships, there is someone whose voice is heard. There is someone who everyone knows and is, you know, have some respect for uh, and is able to speak into such matters or call to order what is going on. But if there is any form of abuse, there must be that sort of uh, letting someone know. You can't take this forever. It, it will be too much. And, and it's, it will lead to something that you never planned for. 
Thank you, Papa. Um, one more question around that, and then I have another question okay. in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes there is the, um, the view mm. that in, within the body of Christ, mm. we tend to want to protect um, the image of churches and the image of senior pastors. Mm. And so if something like this is ever reported, the chances that it gets dealt with um, are quite low. You, So this is people's opinions, right? Mm. That most of the time you will get the lady or the gentleman or whoever it is being blamed for doing, taking actions that brought whatever um, abuse, financial, sexual, whatever, on them. Mm. Um, what is the church doing, so not us, but the body of Christ, the mm. leadership doing to sort of deal with such perceptions mm. because I think it um, stops people from reporting some of these things. Yeah. And because they don't report it, it just gives the, the bad apples okay. <laughs> um, the leeway to continue to act in that manner mm. um, towards their spiritual sons and daughters. Mm. Um, yes, under, under normal circumstances, this should not happen between a son and a father or a daughter and a father. That's why I kept on going back to my definition. Father, it, it, it shouldn't, you see. But then people have their own, there are people who are not Whatever be the case, there are some creatures like that in, in, in the house of God or in the body of Christ. Um, when this happens, yes, that is the same thing that is currently even happening. I think if you look at the latest report of um, rape cases in the United Kingdom, uh, that's, it's not going through prosecution. And so people who are raped don't even feel like reporting because it's like, what's the point? Uh, and they are dying psychologically, you know, because they go and report and the thing never goes to trial. You know, because either it is covered up or they claim there's not enough evidence and so many things happen. And, and most of the cases, as they are saying, just about, you know, less than 20 percent. I think I've even given I think it's about 7 percent something goes to trial, mm -hmm. you know, of all cases. So definitely it will discourage others from from coming forward. Um, we have to realize that the body of Christ. The church is the house of Christ. Is God's house. The pastors are caretakers of the people on behalf of God. It is true that when a senior pastor is involved in something like this, it has got a very serious implications on the wider church. If it is handled properly, it doesn't need to come into the public domain. It has to go through the discipline and go through the process, but at least fairness and justice is, is, is achieved in the end. But when it is hurried, you know, covered, hushed, and suddenly it is turned in the mean, in the interest of protecting the image of church and the man of God, suddenly, you see, what I find heartbreaking in church is the, is the way church can come out to lie. <laughs> you see, that they turn the story around as if, you know, as if you are dealing with a state. Uh, where there are foot soldiers who are able to take over the media in a way and twist the story and do propaganda with it and suddenly say, she is the one. 
This never happened. She actually went to do this, went to tell the man of God, went to do this. She's an agent, blah, 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 Jezebel and all of that. And then suddenly, the whole matter is turned on his head. And what that happens is that the church who does things like this is setting the pace for another one to occur. You know, and I jokingly told one, I mean, it was serious, but he said, I'm cursing him. I said, it's not a curse. I said, you elder that is doing this, the next victim might be your daughter. Because that's the thing. If we try to do these things, if we don't deal with the one doing with the thing, he will pick on another person knowing very well that the defense will come again. That's why sometimes when those things hit the highest level of scandal and it comes out, you realize it's not one victim. It's, it's, there are so many people who may have left the church and then later on, you know, all those things would have been coming because the thing is just turned turn around. So I believe that church must have a structure to deal with this. Uh, there are processes of discipline in the church. It is not only from the top down. If the top really messes up in a way like that, that is really bringing the whole image of Christ into disrepute, the house of God into disrepute, there must be a mechanism for which he himself also gets disciplined. And maybe not from the, but that's why I say there is a network of other ministries. The church itself also has got ties with other institutions you know, like the various bodies that the church is a member of. They deal with these matters, just that the congregation doesn't know that they can take such a matter there because that is where his contemporaries would deal with him there. You know, um, in a church in California, I think so, the senior pastor was doing similar things and um, he was sent to another church to undergo discipline. <laughs> so for the congregation, they just think he's, for some reason, he's moved to another state um, his family is still here, but he's there like six months and they think he's on a preaching tour. But actually he has been taken to someone more senior, someone he looks up to, someone who is disciplining him and taking him through discipline. So you come back reformed, <laughs> but at least some form of discipline has taken place where you have been disciplined for six months from your own pulpit by the body you submit to. You see, but these things are there, people may not know, so they don't know where to tend to. And the easiest way is always that those within try to cover things up, but we must speak truth as children of God. If the thing is where it is, and there's an investigation that found it out, there must be disciplinary committees within churches that also investigate accusations. The Bible also says, against an elder, receive not an accusation. So there could be false accusation, there could be a true accusation. So an accusation doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It may be a true accusation and it may be a false accusation. Both ways, there must be an independent body, even within the church, a team of pastors and deacons who would then investigate the matter thoroughly and come out with their findings. And then recommendations will be made. You know, I think the whites do it better than we the blacks. Um, yeah. um, I, have I don't know whether I've answered the question. Yes, please. But well. I have a, a law question. <laughs> okay, let's bring the law in. Um, where does the law sit in some of these things? Because in the answer you've been given, it's about dealing with this uh, within the church, right? Mm. So, and um, no matter what form they abuse it, whether it's sexual, whether it's servitude, mm. it's, you know, trying to steal people, get falsely, um, forcefully get people's properties and all that. Mm. Um, it's against the law That's right. of, of the land. Yes. So in that case... Do you let the church deal with it or do you let the law deal with it? Because I think sometimes 
it's also one of the reasons why people think the church covers up because um, the church would say, well, we are disciplining the person. Um, that's not the same way the law would discipline the person. So they think that the person got away with it. Uh, so in situations like this, do you let the, the law um, take over or do you let the church handle it? Okay. This is a very, very dicey one uh, because whenever there is a conflict in the church, whether through abuse or anything, um, the law has its place. Um, there's a other group that comes to say, but the scripture says that we should deal with matters first uh, before we go to the law. Um, so as not to bring the body of Christ into disrepute. This is the reason why that first effort is made. My recommendation has always been, if we take that first approach, even in the discipline of whoever the perpetrator is, whether it's the founder or the general overseer or the most senior pastor or the branch pastor is, the senior person who was doing this, that there should be that warning within that first attempt of discipline. That if this occurs again, it won't be handled this way. The law will take its course. Mm -hmm. So it becomes clear. And also, it also depends on the extent of the abuse. I mean, for instance, we will not condone any child abuse. Um, the sexual abuse bit of things, sometimes there's always that defense of it was, it was consensual, it was this, and it becomes back and forth. But of course, if you can establish a real case of rape, it is a criminal offense, and that must be dealt with by the law. I hold that view, and I believe in that. Uh, when there's any child abuse, there's clearly the, there's no tolerance for that whatsoever. That must quickly go to the police. It must go to the law, because you never know where it's going to end. You know that child could have lost his or her life in, in the process. You know, so that is wickedness. Um, so every case must be examined, and where it weighs heavily on criminality it must go uh, to, to that place because the church, much as it is of the kingdom of heaven, is also subject to the laws of the land. And the church is a place of trust. People come to the church because they, they are in safety. Even in, in, in war, in international law, the church is a place of safety. Um, I do remember a few occasions where there is an incident or something that the police have to come in to our church. They stay outside, request the senior pastor to say, we can't enter unless you permit us to come in. Even if we have to come and arrest somebody, we cannot until you permit us to come in because it's a place of refuge. You know, where there's war, people can't run into church. You can't kill them. If you kill them, it's genocide. All those guys later on will be tried. But that's why people run into the church for safety. I mean, they the, the prophet of Islam himself took refuge in the church years ago. He took, the church provided refuge. When his people were under attack, his men were under attack, the bishop of Abyssinia provided safety for them. He told them to run into the church, run into the monastery, they will be saved. And that once they entered there, the assailants could not come in. Because for some reason, even rebels know you can't enter the place. You must be out of your mind to go in there. So it is a place of refuge for people running from even the rapists on the street. And they can't get in here and then we do that to them here. 
You know, people are running from abuse from their families. They get into church for safety. That shall not be the place where they are abused. So when those things are fully established, that's why we need to have in churches, you know, boards and bodies that are actually investigating matters like this and come out with recommendations that can be acted upon. But if the culprit is the most senior pastor, they, their report must still come out. <laughs> You know, and that's where sometimes the challenge comes in. But if some, we know a case where the pastor was finally jailed um, over uh, sodomy. Um, so he, he had to go to jail. I think it was an eight-month sentence, but I think he said four, and he's, he's now out. But, of course, it was all over in the news. And, and it's, it's with, again, you see, this time it's not with women. It's with boys. You know, and so as they serve him, you know, the other day I was teaching, I was saying that these days we don't even know. We don't even know what is correct anymore. You know, gone are the days when we are traveling and they said women are going to attend to us. They said, no, we want men. Now, even if you are with a man in the hotel, it's, it's always confusion. You know, sometimes when we, I'm preaching outside and maybe Pastor Amon have to travel, I said, they, they will say we are gays coming to this hotel. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Now you, you don't have anywhere to hide. But whatever be the case, there must be order. And if it is criminality, we must push for prosecution. Thank you very much, Papa. You're welcome. Someone just called me a pocket lawyer, so I'm going to move <laughs> out of law and then ask, um, I believe, my final question this evening. Papa. Okay. Um, so we hear a lot about spiritual fathers. We do not hear as much about spiritual mothers. Mm. Um, but I believe that if you are, in a, if you are fed um, by a woman, uh, um, a woman of God, um, then you could technically have the same um, father, mother, son, mother, daughter relationship as that person, uh, with that person. But maybe a light-hearted question. Mm. Is the wife of your spiritual father mm. your spiritual mother? Right, okay. Um, it is not always the case. Uh, it is not always the case. I in many cases, people uh, do that by default. Uh, but it is not always the case. Once people see the father, it is natural to assume that is the mother. Um, so it flows in, in churches, but then sometimes you see that the extent of the relationship is not the same as, as those that are classified as sons, sons, and daughters, daughters. So there is that. Um, it is because we also don't have many women as uh, senior pastors and founders of churches. So really you don't have spiritual mothers but it doesn't uh, remove the fact that women play such roles in ministry and there is the possibility of that happening. Uh, in some cases, it, it has served both ways because probably the founder and his wife had been there from beginning and have actually mothered and fathered all these ones through. So it, was, it is like a, it's like a joint thing that, that is going on. Uh, but in certain instances, it, it is not automatic and it is not... Uh, by default. Uh, so sometimes the dynamics change. Uh, there are some churches where um, at the time the founder founded the church, you know, he wasn't married. And then when it comes to the time of marriage, I mean, the church has grown. There are people in the church who are also growing. There are ladies, everybody's eyes were on him. And then he goes to marry someone from outside in order to avoid confusion. Because if he marries any of them, people will think, oh, but I thought it was me, and then it was, uh, we have all saved, we have all done this, blah, blah, blah. So sometimes to avoid confusion, you bring from outside. And that's where sometimes the danger lies, because they have been fed. They have a father 
whoever is coming now, they, they don't really recognize that person as mother. It's just that he's married to a father. <laughs> you know, so they see him more as a stepmother, <laughs> that they are not even going to, proper stepmothers, you can't even relate with them. Well. But then it would take some time for that relationship to build to that level. It cannot be automatic that, okay, we've been here, we have a father. Uh, mommy comes now. She's mommy, but you know, there's no, it's no, there's no chemistry. It would take some time to build and develop these relationships. And it should just not be positional. It must be functional. What role are you playing to deserve to be called mother or father? You know, it should just not be positional. It should be more functional. Um, so I think that is my response to that question. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and that was indeed my very last question. <laughs> so, um, church, please um, help me with some claps and shouts and dancing and singing, as always, to say a very big thank you to you, Papa. You're welcome. Um, I think today we have... Now you are talking, now you are talking. <laughs> We have um, learned a lot. Well, I have learned a lot. Um, I'm sure that everyone who um, joined us has also learned a lot. Uh, we have been equipped for ourselves and also to help other people. Yes. And we are really grateful, Papa. Thank You're you welcome. very much. You're welcome.